Welcome back to the Human Exception. Um, you have to excuse me here because I have a bit of a cold in July, who figured? Um, so don't mind my crackly voice right now. It's fine in the recording. <laughs> Today, I'm going to present you with the next chapter of the Gen Saga. Long before Icarus or Elliot, there was Theo, who met Jen and Jack in 1999. If you're not familiar with the Gen Saga, or more commonly known as the FF7 house, please go to our website, thehumanexception.com, and check out that for more information. Content warning, this story does contain descriptions of childhood verbal and physical abuse, abusive relationships, self-harm, suicidal ideation, and severe struggles with mental health and the mental health system. With all that in mind, let's get ready for another Human Exception. Ready, ready, ready. So, welcome back to the Human Exception, and welcome back to the Gen Saga. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Um, we have a new story from somebody. Um, this person, uh, they're they've chosen to go by the name Theo, and um, they didn't feel comfortable in the show. So I um, and said them and I spent the last while talking about the story and getting all the facts straight so that I could then tell you guys. And every time that this gets added to, I just get that much more scared when you're like, oh, hey, by the way, I met this person. Like, <laughs> fuck. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. Alright, so we'll start this with a quote. I knew them both, unfortunately. They got their hooks on me when I was 17 in 1999. By 2003, I was a non-person. So I've been loosely aware of Theo's story for some time, but their story was an elusive one. It's mentioned only in fragments here and there, and I didn't know exactly what happened, but the way that the other survivors talked about it, which was barely at all, could tell that the scars ran deep. I wouldn't learn much more until a friend from the Tattle Crime Discord shared a conversation that they had with Theo with me. From that, I discovered a story of heartbreak and cruelty, one that had shaken Theo's very foundations. Well, Icarus had only known Jen and Jack for a little over a year, and Elliot, a couple months. Dio, on the other hand, had known them for years, and their relationship with them was far more complicated than I ever could have imagined. The story stuck with me as I continued to do my research and interviews. As I've been trying to cover the Sega chron chronologically, I was stuck with a decision. Did I cover Theo's story, knowing that they tried very hard to stay out of the spotlight as much as possible, and knowing that a, f that a fraction of the trauma that they endured Last thing I wanted to do was re-traumatize them or dredge it past that they tried so hard to escape. But also, their story was an incredible one of strength and inspiration. I debated this internally for some time before finally making the decision to reach out. And I made it clear that participation was completely voluntary. And if they'd rather me not cover the story at all, then that was fine. I would respect that. To my surprise, Theo got back to me nearly right away. They were clear from the start that they didn't know if this was something that they could do. They already had been burned once before when they were asked to open up and tell their story, and even if it had been 10 years since their escape, the World Wide Web had a history of not being so kind to them and other survivors. But Theo was also friends with Icarus, and if Icarus was willing to talk to me, then they'd be willing to at least entertain the idea. 
Quote, the ADHD manic pixie people pleaser in me wants to sit bolt upright and volunteer every last bit of information I can dredge out. But I'm also very much feeling my age these days and the cost of what re-traumatization does. I don't know what could trigger me. And I've only just been able to come to grip with on how to not re-traumatize myself in a general manner in regards to this incident. Still amazes me that I walked away from the somewhat intact. And the fact that I was able to regain general lucidity enough to be able to return to work in 2005 and onwards. I'd love to be seen as something more than other than a victim. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so respectful. I think people like Jen are multiplying these days, and it's important it's important work to call them out and warn people that stuff like this can happen. Warning people about fandom calls is more relevant than has ever been, especially during the pandemic. And with that, Theo would take me on a two-month journey. Okay. You ready? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Giddy up. There's a, yep. Let's go. <laughs> So to understand how Jen was able to worm their way into Theo's defenses, it's important to understand who Theo was. In the early 1980s, Nanette and Brian gave birth to their first child, Theo. Two years later, Theo's sibling, Aiden, would follow, and the family would spend those early years together in their small Maryland town that they called home. From the outside, they probably look like any other lower middle class family, but as is the case with most households, things aren't always as they seem. Aiden and Theo never really saw eye to eye, Aiden embracing their more feminine attributes while Theo was hungry to not be defined that way. Both the symbols, the siblings were assigned female at birth, and Theo knew very early on that they were different from other kids. So it would be quite some time before they really understand what that meant, but it was okay. Their parents encouraged them to be their unique self from an early age. Nanette worked a very stable but highly demanding job during the night shift and making her mostly unavailable during the day, leaving a lot of the parenti- parenting to Brian. Brian was creative and practical, but control was something that he struggled with on a daily basis. Theo and Aiden weren't like many children. Sometimes they made messes and got into stuff that they weren't supposed to, or were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Most parents, will maybe a little annoyed, would take this opportunity to educate. Brian's default became verbal outrage the more he was pushed out of his comfort zone. Quote, we both really loved our father because he was the most entertaining of either of our parents. So he got our attention the most while mom was asleep. But when he got angry, he would yell so much that you'd see the veins in his forehead. I think after too many times of him not being able to handle chaotic children with the intention of the protection for our greater psyches, my mother divorced my father. So Theo was about nine or ten when his parents divorced and an event that would change the landscape of their childhood dramatically. Nanette would win primary custody with Brian having the children on the weekends. Brian took the divorce extremely personally, seemingly having placed all of his self-worth and future plans on his marriage. For all his designs and plans, having kids wasn't exactly top on his list. So when Theo and Aiden were born, their father's carefully organized OCD-esque life came head-to-head with the natural chaos of his children. Quote, the worst of the yelling stopped when he could just play a dad on the weekends and concentrate on entertaining, which is why in retrospect, I'm glad that mom ended up as our guardian. I was too busy processing how I felt about the divorce but when it happened, and I was too young to really see, but I'm pretty sure my father suffered a traumatic break due to the result of that. His worldview was completely shattered, and he turned to, tr- to trying making sense of the world through researching alternative belief systems, pseudo-religions, and tarot symbology. This would inspire my sibling and I, um, with a bit of a tendency to listen to the rhythm of the universe through synchronicity and a little bit of the cult, which eventually was what allowed Jen to take a strong hold of me when she came into my life. The brand of nihilism that he ended up landing on influenced me more than I realized. Watching him never strive for anything more than he was given 
to have never remarried for fear of having his heart broken again influenced me to protect myself from heartbreak by just not even trying, which is a dangerous outlook for someone who is barely 11 years old. Parents are great. I realized that my mic was off, probably because I said a whole lot of horrible words and then <laughs> groaned. And then realized none of that got on the friggin' mic. Uh, so, too long, didn't listen. Uh, oh, the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so, um, this obviously doesn't mean that he didn't love his children, but his obsessive need for control and sense of abandonment after his divorce made him a shell of a man with a hair trigger, hair trigger response to stress, which is a great combination. Mm. See, on the father's side, the family has a long history of depression, OCD, and undiagnosed ADHD. So just, just you know, a clusterfuck of conditions when added stress in there. And mm-hmm. yeah, good times. Uh, but not every aspect of the divorce was bad. Quote, my dad gained an interest in home console video games, so my dad brought home a pre-owned Nintendo with Final Fantasy 1 and Dragon Warrior on it. And this distraction of figuring out how to play through the various titles became a logic puzzle that kept me from getting into messy trouble outside the house. Of the games that I played every weekend at my dad's house, the most notable one that influenced my value system was Final Fantasy 4, though in 1992 it was called Final Fantasy 2 in the U.S. Um... I love the idea of being a noble knight, trying to make things right and trying to forgive my best friend after multiple betrayal, betrayals and kissing my beloved and also my best friend on the moon. End quote. All of this combined made for a complicated relationship between Theo and their dad. Quote, I used to worship my dad, despite the inedible trauma, because he patched it over with apologies and entertainment and essays written after the fact. The thing about my dad that I realized over time is that he never got anywhere because he was so affected every time he was rejected. And the negativity carried with him was modeled for me. And there were very few other major male role models in my life. So giving up or staying safe became the family standard in my mind. Their dad reminds me so much of my mom. The same way of just like emotional triggers and then like apologies and the essays thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. That rings a couple bells. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Brian worked very hard to turn the children on their mother, and a lot of his talking points were true. She was inattentive and neglectful and appeared to choose her job over her family. And while she won primary custody of the siblings, she also worked at night, making her largely unavailable to the children. And with Brian only getting the kids on the weekends, Theo and Aiden would need someone to take care of them during the day. Quote, I'm not even sure it was something she did on purpose, but my mother, knowing my grandparents, she took after her father and only ever said anything when it was an emergency. Which is why, even though we rarely ever saw her, she was a much better and more patient adult while she was asleep than my dad ever was when he was awake. As any parent notes, childcare is not cheap, even in the early 1990s. So to help take care of the siblings, Nanette needed to find a regular babysitter, and like many single parents, she turned to the grandparents. But both Nanette and Brian's parents had raised them both with strict Catholic upbringings that they resented. The similarities between these people ended there. Nanette's family was middle class as opposed to lower middle class and liked to pretend to be refined, living in a snooty, safe, glaringly white neighborhood. Agnes, the matriarch of the family, was strict and cultured, and her husband quiet and compliant. If this sounds somewhat familiar, this is exactly the type of behavior that would be modeled for Theo and presented as a loving and stable relationship with Jen and Jack. 
quote, my mom's side of the family was much more dour and proper and refined. The sort of people who watched entertainment and were more likely to be critics and curators. And I distrusted them wholly because I thought of myself as an artist at the core for as long as I can remember. They weren't rich, but they had worked hard to get to the point where they could afford to save up and afford a fine thing every now and then again. But Agnes always played herself up like she was fancier than she actually was. Meanwhile, Brian's family lived in a dangerous urban neighborhood and didn't have the same means and entertainment at their disposal to care for the kids. But Theo loved them to bits, especially their grandmother, Clara. Quote, dads of the family were entertaining and very Italian. I love this side of the family a lot because they were open and warm and never withheld affection. His mother was the archetypal sweetheart I wished to base myself on before I threw up my arms about my gender. She was never cross with anyone and, and, and that I ever saw, despite being performatively Catholic, even more than my other grandmother, but her path was always a path of peace. It's worth noting that I had a cousin on my father's side that, became, that came out as a lesbian. And she wasn't shunned from the family that I saw. So the behavior modeled by Clara for me made a large impact on how valuable I feel on how valuable I feel acceptance should be. My grandfather was a goofball and was always trying to impress and make a snappy joke. End quote. Despite a close relationship with Brian's family, Nanette wanted to do what was best for her family, and it was just more economical, safe, and enriching for her children to stay with their maternal grandparents. Which I'm sure you can imagine is gonna go great. Yeah. Cool. So Thea's parents had tried hard to encourage the children to think for themselves and embrace the things that made them unique. But this cha- this was challenged by their grandmother. Agnes's strict beliefs and insistence that the children needed to be normal. Agnes took every opportunity to criticize and punish the children for not living up to her expectations. If you asked her, she would blame Theo and Aiden for being ungrateful, disrespectful, and lazy. But looking at this today, we know this behavior is textbook verbal and physical abuse. While Theo was never pushed into Catholic school, they received a full-fledged Catholic guilt upbringing, complete with lectures and spankings that didn't stop until they obeyed without question. Theo was repeatedly told that they were too fat, too different, didn't smile enough, didn't sit straight enough, or conform enough, and that it was bad to be a punky art kid despite that being their exact aim. Stop it. Yeah. So... While the abuck of abuse came from Agnes, her husband never lifted a finger to come to the defense of either of his grandchildren. Grandpa was quiet and kind and endured the verbal lashings with the same indifference as he had when they were targeted at Theo and Aiden. This made Theo feel like they had no one to turn to. If the man that had married to their grandmother couldn't stand up for himself, how could Theo, a child... Theo learned to bow their head and obey, and any, fi- and any friend who exhibited even a trace of Agnes-like ire was quickly tagged as stay safe, must obey, which became a problem in many of Theo's friendships, not just Jen and Jack. Theo thinks that Agnes's behavior was inherited. They knew that Agnes's own parents were less than stellar role models. Her father had frequently physically beat her, and her mother had been an alcoholic. Quote, I was an unmanageably spoiled brat who got to have toys and eat meat when she had to eat onions so that her father could be strong enough to work. My grandfather once stopped my grandmother's father from beating her with a belt in broad daylight in public. So there are people who have some justice in my family. And they didn't really have therapy back then, and it was impossible to tell how much of the abuse that my grandmother internalized permanently and then was doomed to repeat, even unintentionally. Yeah. Hmm. So this is something we see a lot. Mm-hmm. It's often the worst abusers were abused themselves. Right, and then it gets mimicked, and yeah. It just goes down the line. Yep. 
gotta break the chain. Um, so while at home caring for their grandchildren, she was abusive, but at her job, she was well-regarded and a motivated woman who completed college in her 60s. To the outside world, she was, quote, the model Clinton-era Democrat pantsuit and all. So as is the case with nearly all abusive relationships, things weren't always bad. The, their grandparents did have a pool and a passion for musicals and cinema. Quote, when she wasn't making me fear for my life, I enjoyed being a wash in entertainment with them. This is what set me up to be picked and groomed by the people like Jen. She took my sibling and I to Broadway once to see the Phantom of the Opera in the late 90s. And it was really awesome. And I think I still have some keepsakes from the trips, like a set, a set of gold-plated paperclips and some rose-colored ink that I think was definitely beat-based. Part of what kept me agreeing to go to places with my grandmother was, if not for her, then I would never have gotten to travel at all. My parents had to go through a lot of hoops to allow travel out of the state on their own, and my dad's side of the family had no wanderlust. But Agnes was very aspirational, and she wanted things, so when she saved up, she planned and made it happen. She could threaten my siblings with the whole, like, you don't get to go to the ocean with us, or how dare you, I took you to New York once. Which wasn't so great, and that behavior was then later echoed by Jen with the, we took you for dinner once. But while I was in these new places far away from home, I was there, you know? I could say I got to be at these places and experience these things instead of my experience being un uninterrupted in my room playing video games. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thing that I feel like so many people don't understand about abuse. <laughs> it's just like, it's not just abuse all the time. They, they make these amazing yeah. things happen otherwise. Right. Yep. And it just locks you in. Yeah. And your brain fights for space. Trying to figure out how that one person can be so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like something bad will happen. You're like, fuck, I can't put up with this anymore. If something else happens, right. then I'm going to have to do something. But then something doesn't happen for a while. Right. And then things are like, okay, well, so things were kind of okay. We did, went and did this thing. So they just and then like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when you're so young as a kid, too, you just you want to excuse that behavior. I wonder, I don't know if, if Theo talks about this. Um, so, you know, stop me if I'm jumping ahead of the gun here. But I know that the three of us have talked about that moment where you kind of go, oh, this is not normal. Yeah, um, we don't really get into a revelation where that happened in the story, but it's something that, that them and I have definitely talked about a talked lot. About, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I'm sure for them it was a big shock because she they pretty much go through this thing with their family pretty much directly into the thing with Jen. So uh, I'm sure once they started to get the recovery point that a lot of things started to click and they're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. So um, Theo's mom did the best that she could, but they by no means were living in the lap of luxury. Theo remembers that the years between fourth and sixth grade, they lived in a terrible apartment complex in a very bad neighborhood. The kids in the neighborhood seemed to resent the background that Theo came from, and they took every opportunity to pick on them, so Theo further retreated into themselves. When they weren't at school, they were playing Sega Genesis, or watching Star Wars, or working on their stories. Their stories became vitally important to them, a way of escaping the world and telling a different narrative than their isolated and very lonely life. In 1994, Theo's mom would move them into a house in the same neighborhood as Agnes, which would become Theo's home for the next 15 years. Here, they faced similar dejection from the neighborhood kids, but instead of being resented for a more fruitful upbringing, they were looked down upon for their less wealthy background. 
Theo struggled really hard to make friends and to complicate matters. It was around this time that they began to realize that they were attracted to girls as well. Quote, I also think it was around this time that a character in a popular show came out as gay. And I watched in horror as Agnes threw a tirade at the TV for showing lesbians on screen. The pitch at which she screamed lesbians still sits in my heart as one of the many things that made me feel unaccepted by her and her side of the family. Even if it wasn't directed at me, it was very painful and just drove home how unsupported I would be if I were ever to even tell someone, much less act on any of the stuff that I was feeling at the time. Oh. Mm-hmm. It was in seventh grade that Theo met Santa. Santa was smart, smug, and loved to read, and the two became fast friends. Quote, we were inseparable goofballs who obsessed with satire, Final Fantasy, and cartoons, and sometimes I feel very bad for growing up from that. We just orbited each other on Lawler skates, 90s, Tiny Toons, level manic serotonin, despite not letting anyone else in. She was very well-read and well-spoken. She didn't have dyslexia. She spelled and pronounced everything correctly. And keeping up with her intellectually actually made me a better person. But her elitist attitude really got grating the closer to reality we both got. End quote. So when Theo was 16, they entered the workforce, and Santa really struggled with this. Theo could no longer devote all their free time to her, and Santa had serious misgivings about retail work, preventing her from also gaining that same bit of ind independence. But this isn't the only thing that would begin to drive them apart. Around 8th grade, Theo began a six-month relationship with Matt, a boy from school. Santa had never expressed romantic interest in anyone at this point, and became further miffed at the fact that there was something else dividing her best friend's time. and it. And it wasn't just Santa that seemed to struggle with Theo's relationship. Matt's female friends admonished Theo for taking Matt off the market and not giving more worthy girls a chance with him, which cut to Theo's already shaky self-worth immensely. Could you imagine that? Are the worst. Like, uh... Teenagers are the worst. Right? It's just like, <laughs> you're you should say you should let him go somewhere worthy girls could have a chance Haters are the worst oh my god oh. i can't believe it wow okay but it's not like things with matt were all sunshine and rainbows theo had a difficult time with physical intimacy due to some other childhood trauma and this wasn't made easier by matt's perpetually chapped lips and lackluster kissing skills no but this <laughs> <laughs> no it was not good <laughs> But this constant idea that Theo wasn't good enough for Matt wore at them. The final nail in the coffin happened when Theo walked in on Aiden kissing Matt. Theo doesn't remember who ended the relationship, but it didn't last much longer after that. Theo's no. trust in Matt was broken with that act, and it didn't matter who initiated it. Matt allowed it to happen. Oh, no. Yeah. Not the sibling. Mm-hmm. Uh... And the fact that the next person that Matt dated was a very popular girl only further drove home the idea that Theo hadn't been worthy to date anyone to begin with. Mm. <laughs> Despite this being for the better, it all hit Theo quite hard, leaving them heartbroken, and Santa wasn't quite sure how to deal with this. Quote, she wasn't mad at me for getting a boyfriend, but when the dumping happened, I changed from being a simpering goofball animaniacs character into an increasingly edgy, depressed mess, and therefore less fun to be around. End quote. Theo and Santa remained good friends, but this marked the beginning of a change in their relationship. Quote, we coasted for a few years, and me getting on the internet kind of put even more of a rift between Santa and I, but things didn't get unkind until 10th grade when we both got our greasy little mitts on Final Fantasy VII. The ruiner of all things. 
Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> In 1997, we saw the release of Final Fantasy VII, and it would take the role by storm. So naturally, Santa and Thea, already being big fans of the series, couldn't wait to get to play the new game. Quote, I think the origin of things with Santa all getting worse was because I was ahead of Santa and playing and beating Final Fantasy VII. And so I took to the internet instead of the RP journal that we shared to talk about it. Santa would have enjoyed Santa would have ended up enjoying Final Fantasy VII a lot more if I hadn't been so hyper-focused on it. My obsession went to a level that was annoying to her. And I didn't want to pivot or move backwards or forwards. So we just stayed annoyed at each other without ever directly discussing it or attempting to resolve things because we had just always ever just automatically gotten along. We didn't know how to have those conversations. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. So Theo fell head for help. Theo fell head first into the online Final Fantasy VII fandom and found themselves not only participating in discussions, but also creating fan art and writing fanfic. But there was one particular character that they found themselves focusing on. Hojo. So Hojo was a villain, a mad scientist responsible for experimenting on soldiers and making Sephiroth. Not the typical character you would expect someone to relate to. But for Theo, they picked up on the sparse information of Hojo's past and saw someone that had seen true tragedy. And this was something that Theo could relate to. Last thing that they expected, though, was Santa's reaction. Quote it, quote, I can't speak to how she processed reacting to Hojo, but I thought it I was the smartest and most empathetic person alive because I sensed some pain in Hojo's past. I was absolutely convinced he was just as smitten with Lucretia as Vincent Valentine was. It was an important time in my life because I, because in disagreeing with Santa, it was the first time I'd ever really pushed back on anyone I was in any sort of long-term friendship with. There was also a very detached sense of identity I found writing a popular, unpopular character like Hojo that ha had some sort of in-universe power that was on the level with or over another very popular character. I was also very secretly, but not so secretly, crushy on Lucretia because I thought she was pretty. But because I couldn't identify with or as Vincent Valentine, one of the main characters, um, like I was rebuffed by his popularity and associated him with the associate with him with the girl that Matt replaced me with. And I was canon suing as Hojo. My ship was Hojo and Lucretia. And this that both fascinated and disgusted a lot of people that I came across. Hojo was much less a character from a video game to me than he was as a symbol of my personal freedom before I became associated with Jen's other kin trap. He was also a symbol of my introductory journey into maturity. He was a crazy font of inspiration and a way to kind of wiggle my way into thought spaces where I could briefly imagine myself as a man who didn't have to care about the feelings of others which was diametrically the opposite of what I experienced in real life, of having to play like a femme people pleaser, whether it was healthy or not. What I got out of this was I was able to balance out how absolutely powerless the real world always left me feeling. So Theo had changed. Even their writing and art showed drastic differences of styles and subjects. The tone became darker and they grew more and more interested in exploring this complex character. And with this, they found their own niche. Hojo wasn't a popular character by any means. It's natural for teenagers, to, especially, to be drawn to villains. The idea of them being misunderstood and often having immense power they tend to wield in common fantasy is a common, sorry, is a common fantasy for many young people that was just any little bit different. But with mm -hmm. Sephiroth, he was incredibly popular. Very classic, badassery, conventional, attractive, with long, flowing silver hair. His fandom was massive. Hojo, on the other hand, was much smaller fan base like he was not you know like he was kind of like a dorky looking nerd character like 
not conventionally attractive in any way. He's like, like he's in his forties kind of thing. So like teenagers weren't as, as interested in it as well. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a very small fandom. Because of this, Theo's work stood out. They were a prolific writer and artist and were always posting and interacting with the community. So it wasn't long before other Hojo fans were drawn to them. Quote, The pieces of fanfiction I wrote about Hojo were about me expressing my emotions through a character that I cared about even though it was a fantasy directed in a solitary manner. They were a way of screaming about how much pain I was in as a teenager, influenced by all the other dramatic stories I absorbed on on Agnes's couch. But despite the feeling of power this gave me, it was fleeting because I was alone and feeling the crushing weight of loneliness the closer that I got to age 18. Theo would end up writing a very popular fanfiction centered around Hojo, one wherein Hojo was given a second chance and a new body. Around this time as well, they had begun learning how to make websites. So they made a place to host their stories and people loved it. Quote, it was like night and day. Not only was I getting the level of tension that I'd always hoped for since I was five, It was backfilling the years of doing without. It also made me want to be very, very online, which Santa also didn't really like. This completely broke the pure unbroken chain of me and maybe like 10 real live friends orbiting around Santa that was our entire friend circle. My level of connection with people went from living in a cave and visiting the village every now and then to feeling like a rock star for saying things that people thought were brave, crazy, or different. It would be around this time that Theo would meet Jack. And while Jack had never played Final Fantasy VII, he really appreciated Theo's writing. Quote, When I first met Jack, I thought he was amazing. Even though he was only one year older than me, he seemed to have so much of his shit together. His parents had gotten him to go to a for-real college. He was much more open about his non-standard sexuality and gender expression, and I really admired that about him, and I wanted to be more like him. I leaned very hard into the senpai gig with him. I adored Jack, and I was looking very badly to fill that gap in my heart that Santa had left when I stopped being friends with her. Jack respected me, and I loved listening to him. He was very cool and knew a lot of stuff that I wanted to know, too. End quote. Through Jack, Thea would also meet Eris. Um, if you guys don't remember, um, Eris was an Icarus' story. It's a girl that um, Jen was trying to make him get together with, even though he's asexual. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Quote, at this time, Jack was more of a general fandom person, and between me and Eris, we both drowned up enough hype about Final Fantasy VII that Jack finally bit, though with begrudging amusement. End quote. Jack would play Final Fantasy VII and would become hooked, also finding the same appreciation that Theo had for the villain Hojo. Jack ran a web hosting service and did freelance web design at the time and would offer to host Theo's fanfiction and art. It wouldn't be long after that Jack would make Hojo.org, a web shrine dedicated to Hojo. And this would be the flame that would draw Jen into their lives. Mm. So when Theo met Jack, Jack had never played Final Fantasy VII. He had nothing to do with it. And like, obviously a part of Theo blames themselves for what happened because if Jack hadn't been in the fandom, Jen wouldn't have got to them. Mm. Which obviously, like, you cannot hold yourself accountable for that, right? But Right, yeah, but no. still, yeah. So, it would be late 1999, early 2000, when Jack would receive an email. Quote, Apparently Jen thought that every beat of that particular Hojo fanfic that I wrote synced up with her personal life perfectly. And it was like I knew her. And she reached out to Jack, thinking that he was me. 
and I got an email forwarded to me from Jen dripping with such high praise that my burned out and untrusting emotional senses refused to even think of it as genuine, but I wanted to believe. And I thanked her in a professional way for the praise and sort of filed the information in my head as Jen was a fan of mine, but a bit too enthusiastic. Little did I know what was about to hit me. End quote. Jen would respond, quickly going into a story about her ex and her feelings. Theo didn't really know how to respond to this, this sudden outpour of emotions and personal information. So they kind of ignored the email for a bit before ever eventually responding. <laughs> so it's like Jen just comes on like hot, like here's the sob story of my life. <laughs> and Theo's like, I don't know you. Oh. And you're throwing all this praise and stuff at me. And like, I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> Quote, I felt, yeah, I felt uncomfortable with Jen, the stranger dumping her dirty laundry on me out of the blue. And before she left California, she was always talking about, well, suicide and self-harm and about how, how these things were bad for her. End quote. So as if disappointed that Theo didn't in- immediately engage with her or respond to the same enthusiasm, Jen's interest then drifted to Jack. The two began to communicate on a regular basis, and before anyone knew it, Jen had wormed her way into that very small corner of the fandom and Theo's friend group, which included Eris and Jack. Quote, Eris was much more critical of Jen than anyone else in the group was at the time. Jack had been her friend at first, and then Jen had moved in on them and out of nowhere and made a ton of room for herself, and Jack was not used to being engaged and flattered in the way that Jen was with them. So they were magnetized, and Eris saw it before really anyone else did. End quote. Despite Theo's suspicions and Eris's wariness, Jen became a fixture in the community, making friends wherever she went. Quote, Jen has a way of being able to garner people's attention, whether it's functionally positive or negative, just as long as she's the one engaged and entertained by it. At first, I was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt because she too grew up in a way that made it very hard for her to make friends and truly like herself. End quote. Jen also brought something else with her. The idea of... The idea of reincarnation of a fictional character. Well, Eris had her own thing with soul bonding um, in the group. It was kind of a belief system that she had, but she never really forced it on anyone else. But that wasn't the case with Jen. Quote, the more the thought of, okay, but seriously, you're this character, you're a reincarnation of someone super important who's your favorite character was pushed on me, the more I was conflicted about it. It interrupted the ability to be brutal in my writing because that shifted the narrative from I'm writing about these intense things to to like deal with a lack of power in my real life to if I write how I used to write, it's going to look like I'm willingly hurting these people that live in my head and I'm not an unkind person, so I must stop writing the way that I used to so that I remain that good person. Like Jen literally saw um, Theo's fan fiction because it, it was very drama-y, teenage-y with like you know, lots of violence and bad things, people being bad to each other, as you'd expect. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so Jen saw this fan fiction as a form of self-harm. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Jen quickly assigned characters from her favorite media to all her friends, the most prominent one being Final Fantasy VII. Jen became Genova, Eris became Eris, Jack became Hojo, and since Jen was vehemently against the idea of doubles, Theo wouldn't be Hojo anymore, which created some tension as Jen was ins- as Jen was insistent that Theo was someone else that just needed to figure out who. 
Quote, at the time, even though I was a little bit jealous that Jack got to be Hojo, I still, still cared more about him than I did Jen, and it showed, and that infuriated her. Quote, and that wasn't it. Quote, so there's the thing about Eris. I respected her theories and never blunt force trauma went to refute them. Jen pulled a lot of Eris's soul-bounding stuff into her own way of doing things, but it was very derivative and used it in a way to further ensnare Jack. So even before the account detailed on the warning site happened, Eris was angry. The way that Jen copied Eris's soul-bonding stuff and retrofit it to her needs was a thing that Jen pushed on me. Jen convinced me, at least for a little while, that because I didn't acknowledge the characters who were in my head that were going through pain, that I was some kind of abuser myself, and I didn't want to be seen as an abuser. So I stopped writing for myself while I was in that sway for the most. But since I derived personal power and a small measure of internet clout and friend network from the writing, what she did was actually disable one of my ways of self-healing. End quote. So yeah, it's like just another way for Jen to take that power away. So here's something that like Theo's using to work through all the complicated feelings that they're going through, and just you know it's a creative outlet, and Jen took that away. Hmm. That's gross. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, things with Santa were not improving, and this was tearing Theo apart. Quote, Jack encouraged me to take care of my own needs, and they were clearly not being met as they were with Santa's reactions to what I was doing. And that meant a lot to me in the year 2000, and it became part of the reason why I cared so much about following him, even if it also meant that Jen was going to be there, even if Jen was varying degrees of garbage. End quote. It wasn't long before it was revealed that Jen and Jack had entered a relationship, which only made untangling Jen's narrative all the more complicated. Quote, when I looked at Jen and Jack back then, I saw what I thought was true love. I thought it was beautiful, but I was only looking on it from the outside. Jen created interest in herself based on a very loud overtures and interacting very publicly with Jack online. I really just wanted to be able to spend more time with Jack, but Jen just took up so much space. By the time that Jen had him by the everything, he was repeating her words like gospel. There was even this really weird thread where Jen was calling herself God in a kind of dogma of the movie way which signified to me that Jen had Jack by some sort of core pre-existing religious beliefs. Jen's insistence that Jack was Hojo and that, and that I put my own perception of Hojo away or on the back burner or behind me nearly broke me. And my stubborn insistence in not surrendering my house god, quote, to her, made her change tactics in a way that I didn't think anyone saw coming, but it also outlined very clearly that she was a manipulator. So, as is usual with the fan, fan community, it's like, people who write fan fiction stuff have different interpretations of different characters, as I'm mm -hmm. sure y'all are aware. Like some people may see a character in a lot more sympathetic light and write them that way. And that's how they envision that character where others would see them more as an aggressor. Um, Jen's vision of Hojo was drastically different than Theo's and Jack's was different than Theo's as well, but a lot more compatible, like a lot more compatible with what Theo's was, but then Jack started to adopt Jen's idea of who Hojo was. Oh, goodness. Mm. Yeah. That's so looking... Good. Yeah. <laughs> looking back, Theo can't help but wonder if they had engaged with Jen in those early emails the way that Jen had expected. Was it possible that it would have been them that had wound up trapped in a relationship with her? Which is a terrifying thought. That is an absolutely terrifying yeah, thought. Yeah, I don't... Mm -mm. Especially like looking at the situation now, like if it had been them instead of Jack, like Jack spent the next nine years in that relationship. 
So, quote, I remember a bunch of sleepless nights over AIM where Jen was talking about self-harming, and I put a lot of energy into talking her down, and she told me herself that she was going to go live with Jack. I was both simultaneously jealous that Jen got to go live with Jack and relieved that this would mark the end of having to talk her down. It also made me think that living with Jack would be pretty cool. It would not be. It was remarked upon several times that it could have been me that Jen had ended up with. If I had just pushed harder in the beginning for it, but I never really wanted it, and Jen only responds to direct and sustained interest in her. Jen's home life. The way that Jen phrased things, her home life back in California slash Oregon was horrible. Her mother was some sort of controlling monster, but whether that was true or not is heavily debated. Having spoken with someone that knew her from her time when she was living in Oregon with her mom, her mother sounded like a very much lovely woman that really just wanted the best for her daughter. But perception is a tricky thing. Knowing Jen's penchant for portraying her life as tragic for sympathy, it's highly probable the things at home were really not bad. She likely just wanted to be free of parental guidance and to live with someone that was going to worship her and seek to fulfill her every need. I've absolutely no information about her, like actually no true, like no consistent information about what she's claiming that her mom did to her. Like I know she said to Eric and stuff that her mom was like abusive and super like controlling, but from talking to Nate, um, it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. And like everything else that we know about her mom, she sounds completely wonderful. But Jen is like, Jen wants to be worshipped. She doesn't want to have a reasonable relationship with people. She wants people to be completely subservient to her. Like her mom wouldn't do that (laughs) because parental figure. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And then like with the whole way that she was like constantly going to Jack and going to Theo and probably Eris, I'm not sure, sure about like when constantly threatening self-harm, threatening suicide. It's a very kind of classic manipulation, abusive tactic to like get people's attention. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sure enough, in 2001, Jen would get a bus ticket, taking her from her mom's place to State College, Pennsylvania. Quote, I was relieved that Jen got out of her bad situation that would mean the end of the late night suicide IMs. At first, Jen and Jack seemed to have found a perfect space for each other and had entered a loving relationship. And seeing that, I thought I saw, I seeing what I thought was a loving relationship from afar, I do admit I was jealous of both of them. Of course, this view was only from the outside, and I had no way of knowing what was actually going on. End quote. That winter, someone new would join the little group. Quote, around this time was when I would make acquaintances with Icarus and Czar. At the time, Jack, Czar, and Icarus were people that I held in a very high regard and got along with almost effortlessly. Czar's and Icarus's energies really reminded me of the zany, cartoony fun times that I had with Santa, and I'm really glad that I've stayed friends with Czar and Icarus as things have become over the years. End quote. The following summer, Icarus would move in with Jen and Jack. Around this time, Theo had pulled away somewhat from Jen and Jack and wasn't aware of what was happening while Icarus was there. And also around this time, Eris would leave the group, and not long after, Icarus would then escape. Once on the outside, Icarus eventually contacted Theo and began to let them in on what had happened. And Theo believed it. And it made them all the more concerned about Jack and wanting to get him out. So Theo waded back into the pool. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off with Theo's story as they try to rescue Jack from Jen's clutches and the fallout that would occur because of that. Also, hopefully my voice will be recovered by then. As always, pictures and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. 
To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>